Good morning. What was the first thing that went wrong in the Garden of Eden? No, it was not disobedience to God. No, it was not Eve looked. What was the first problem in the Garden of Eden? Not Satan appearing. Man, kind of. There was a problem before the fall. There was a problem before the snake came in. There was a problem. Loneliness. Loneliness was the first problem in the Garden of Eden. Genesis. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. This is Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. He goes on and he brings all the animals before God and gets uh, um, Adam to name them. Um, and... If you keep reading, you find that none of them were the right fit. So then um, God creates Eve to be a good fit for Adam. So right from the beginning, even in paradise, God was very concerned with what was good for us. He, was, he created us as his children, and it wasn't just, here you are in the garden, I've given you everything you need, you know, I'll see you in a week's time, and you know, you'll be fine. It was, he paid attention. What, what does man need? Hmm. It's not actually good for this man I've created to be alone. That's not what's good for him. Immediately he wants to nourish us, to, to give us um, joy. Um, when you read Ecclesiastes, um, where uh, the, the teacher is, is, is grappling with the meaningless of life and he goes through everything is, is futile, one of the things he says is, um, for the man who has no family and works and accrues all this money, and he asks himself, what am I doing this for? What am I earning all this money for? I don't have a family. One of the big problems in our society is loneliness. Um, one of the big contributing factors to suicide is loneliness. If I was to disappear, would anybody care? Would anyone miss me? God is very concerned about our issue of loneliness. And this is where the, the message of the Bible is relationship. So in the garden we had right relationship with God. Not we were right and God existed, but we had right relationship with God. Then the fall, we step out of that, but of course we know from um, Romans that what Jesus did was allow us to return into right relationship with God because our sin can be forgiven, there's remission of sins, we can enter his presence. So we come to this part of Mark and this is Mark that um, Joel was reading, read very well. And this is a continuation of God's interest in our loneliness. So a bit before the passage I've been given, you would probably be familiar with uh, the Passover and Jesus actually tells Peter that he's going to deny him. And one of the Gospels, I, think, I believe it's in Luke, Luke 22, um, as Peter is saying, Lord, I'll, I'll go 
to the grave with you. Like I, you know, they've been roaming around, ministering together for three years. Um, they would have been leaning on each other. They would have been closer than brothers. For three years, they've been leaning on each other. Peter knows who Jesus is. He's the first one to confess who Jesus is. Um, he is Jesus' right-hand hand man, you know, blood brothers, basically. They are thick as thieves. And Jesus is telling him, you're going to fall away. Can you imagine what Peter's thinking? No, I, whatever it takes, this will not happen. Uh, interesting, this kind of explains his response in the garden when Jesus comes. So we've got... Um, Judas comes with, with all the, the leaders and they've got a mob there, an angry mob. And so you can imagine Peter, he's like, Jesus told me this is my moment, I'm about to deny them. No way. And he pulls his sword out and slashes off the ear of one of the, um, the mob, the soldiers. Um, and it it's, it's just makes so much sense when you understand that Peter was so ready, so ready to just not do what Jesus has told him to do because why would he want to do that to his best friend? So he sees this opportunity, this scary mob comes rushing up with swords and clubs and he's like, well, this is it. You know, I've got my sword. I'm ready to fight to the death for you, Jesus. I am, I am here. If I get a sword through me, that's okay because I'm not walking away from you. So he didn't understand. Um, he didn't understand what was going to happen and he was doing everything he could in his own strength to do otherwise. But one of the, one of the versions of, sorry, one, one, of, the, one of the accounts of, of the Passover when, when uh, Jesus is talking to Peter is he says, I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you that after you deny me and you have repented and returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And it's interesting, after, after Jesus um, rises from the dead and he's talking to Mary, uh, some of the women, and he says, go and appear to Peter and my disciples. Actually names Peter, go and appear to Peter. Because he knows that Peter's in turmoil and Peter needs to hear the good news. And we know from Acts that Peter stands up among them and becomes quite a leader. Uh, he does amazing, wonderful things. And what a shame it would have been if Peter had have wallowed in his grief, what a terrible, terrible person I am. I denied God, who I knew was God, in his moment, after three years of being at his side, when he needed me most, what a horrible person I am. He could have just gone into depression. He could have followed Judas's path of just going away and dealing with himself. But instead, Jesus said, I prayed for you. Once you've repented and returned to me, strengthen your brothers. It's like a, Peter, you're not good enough. You're not going to be good enough, but it's okay. Once you've done this, I just need you to get back in line. We don't need to hash it out. We don't need to talk about it. Just get back in line because I've got work for you to do. I need you. I need you to get up and do things. And I still love you. I was listening to um, psychologist Jordan Peterson um, who often has some very interesting thoughts um, uh, worth a listen to with a bit of um, discernment, if you like. I'm not 100% sure where he stands in, in the faith. But he's, he, he makes a lot of strong points as a psychologist. And one of the things he was talking about is, is in a relationship, 
you need to make it for the, for, for the other person in the relationship the smallest amount of change possible for them to return to you, if you like. So th th this plays out best in the example of a marriage. If a spouse has offended you, is doing something that insults you or hurts you, you need to make it as small as possible for them to return to you. So that means they don't need to upheave their whole life. You don't need to be critical of every little behaviour. But maybe in gentleness, it's, it's this thing you're doing is, is hurting me. Um, and I want you to work on it. It's, I just want you to fix it. You know, you know, not you are the worst spouse I've ever had. You've never loved me. And just tear that person down beyond recovery. But you make it a small change. I just, if you can fix this, and, and you just pour grace over them. You're just so willing to be patient as they change something. Because you, we all know that you've got little things you need to change as well. And this is what Jesus does for Peter. Once you've repented and returned to me. Not Peter, get in that temple. 47,000 Hail Marys. I want to see you on your knees. I want to see you grieving for a period of three months. I want you to chastise yourself with the whip. I want you to run to Rome and back four times in bare feet. No, it's a small change. Once you've repented and returned to me, back in line. I've got work to do. All is forgiven. I will pour my grace upon you. This is what we need to do, is have, have a grace attitude. Peter's denial is one of my favourite parts of the Bible because it's so easy to relate to. And it reminds you that when you fail, and you will fail, every single person here, you're about to do something silly at some point in the future. It's just a fact. But once you have repented and returned to him, get back in line, strengthen the brothers. Strengthen the brothers. Don't be lost in loneliness. Strengthen the brothers. It's not just once you've repented and returned to me, be perfect. Once you've repented and returned to me, don't you ever disown me again. We're going to test you again. You know, once you've repented and returned to me, you better be the most, you know, like the Pharisees and you need to tithe all your herb gardens. Once you've repented and turned to me, strengthen your brothers. Get back into relationship. Can you see what I'm establishing as a relationship? Can you see the whole point of what I'm doing is to build relationship with people, is to free people from loneliness, and I need you to get back into this mission with me. Strengthen your brothers. So we need to remember that, that Jesus, although sin is very serious, and it's important that we grasp hold of one concept and not let go of another, we learn from Ecclesiastes, and that is that sin is very serious. And we do need to have genuine repentance and godly sorrow. And God is, is pleased with a contrite heart, someone who really feels the weight of what they've done. But if our repentance is genuine and our heart is in the right place, it's a small change. It's already forgiven. I don't know if you've ever had a spouse um, upset you and the minute they start apologising and you can see sincerity in their eyes or you can hear in the tone that they're greatly concerned before they even finish their apology you've forgiven them wouldn't you agree when you hear someone genuinely apologizing and they're in turmoil over what they've said before they even finish you've forgiven them you just all i wanted was you to stop and care all i wanted was you to repent and return to me not 
a big charade, a big display, a small change. And I want to talk about Jesus and how he responded to this moment. I want you to picture for a minute that you're in, the, you're in the garden with Jesus and you have been traveling with him for three years. You've been staying wherever. You've seen miracle after miracle. God has provided places for you to sleep, meals for you to eat. Jesus has done everything. You've un come to understand that he is God in flesh. He's been telling you, this is going to happen to me. He's told you to sell your jacket and buy a sword. He's told you all these things about being ready and what it's going to be like in the last days. He has got you, you, emotions are high, you are so invested. I mean, you're walking with God. And this angry mob comes up with swords and clubs to arrest God in front of you. High emotion. You can imagine them screaming and yelling and maybe there was flaming torches. You know, probably half the mob didn't really know why they were there, but you know something to do on a boring afternoon. Peter lashes out with a sword. Can you just picture for a moment, this, this mob comes rushing up, Judas kisses him, betrays him, Peter's like, I'm not having it, slashes off, and Jesus says, put the sword away. Stop. Stop, Peter. Can you imagine Peter for a minute? You want me to stop? You want me to stop? Did he say stop? Did he say stop? Really? And then Jesus says, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you need to come with these mobs? Like, look at me, I'm standing here. I saw you last week in church. I saw you. Hey, dude with the big sword, I saw you. you know, last week in church when you were listening, paying attention. Could have spoken to me then if you didn't like what I was saying. Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you need to come out here with your clubs and your swords and your abuse and and drag me away like a hog. Like, just come talk to me. Let's sit down, let's share a meal. He shows them the silliness, if you like, of what they're doing. Why do you need to do this? Just talk to me. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple, proving the point that they had no grounds to arrest him? I've never hidden the things I've said from you. I'm not some dangerous revolutionary. I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening. Can you imagine? There's emotion everywhere and Jesus is just really still. And he says, these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. And it is so clear, and it would have been so clear, that he was laying down his life. No one takes Jesus' life away from him. He lays it down. So he took this opportunity to just still the emotion, you're not going to drag me away. I'm going. Because what you don't understand is I planned this. This is my choice because this is how I'm going to solve man's greatest issue of sin and loneliness. Then we look at Jesus in the trial. And many false witnesses are coming up against him. You know, people just saying, oh, I'll have a go. I saw him say this. I saw him say that. And it says their testimonies didn't agree. He said this, he said that, their testimonies don't agree. The high priest stands up and says, aren't you going to answer these charges? Like it's probably a little bit weird that Jesus isn't getting agitated. He's not rebuking them. He's not saying, I never said that. He's just sitting there. 
copying the abuse. Why? Because he chose to be there. In one of the gospel accounts, before he gets taken away, he says, don't you understand that if I asked my father, I could have 12 legions. Yeah, like I could just crack open heaven and so many angels could come down. I'm choosing not to willingly. Aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Now, there's two reasons why he did that. One, because he knew he was going to be there and he was just waiting for the process to happen because he didn't really, you know, he wasn't there to argue his case. He was there to achieve what he was to achieve. But also because the scriptures say that like a lamb before the slaughter, he was silent. You know, a, a lamb that, that has been brought in the, in the Jewish customs and is about to be slaughtered is silent. You can smell what's about to happen. It's quiet. It's humble. It knows what it's about to go through. Jesus was silent because he is the lamb. And you can imagine in this moment where Jesus, fully human, feeling the way we feel, under immense attack and hatred and slander, he is so resolved on loving us. And he is so resolved on I am here to solve sin, to solve loneliness, to return people to my presence. I am here because of how much I love people. I am here and I know why I'm here and this is what I'm doing. So he just sat there silent. Then the high priest asked him, and this is where he says something. The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And he answers that one. Why? Because, because he is God and he needs to make that known. And also, that's the charge under which he dies for, blasphemy, according to the high priest. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. The high priest tore his clothing, like fumingly angry at what Jesus has just said. Why do we need any other witnesses? That was his death sentence right there. Then we've got Peter's denial. And, and I just want to add to what I was saying about Peter's denial. One of the things that qualified Peter in repenting and returning was his response. His response to his denial was he went out, broke down and wept bitterly. That is indicative of a very sincere heart. We go on and very early the next morning again, Jesus, this time in front of the, the Roman um, leaders, not, not the church leaders. And again he is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he affirms that. The church leaders are accusing him of many crimes and Pilate asks him, aren't you going to answer these? Like it must have been out of character. Can you imagine people who know the Roman process, and I'm not going to be gory with the Roman process, but I think we've all heard at some point how horrific the Romans treated criminals. So you can imagine every time a criminal comes before Pilate, they would be begging for their life. 
No, sir. No, sir. I didn't do these things. I did not do these things. They would be agonizing to get out of it. And here's Jesus. He's just sitting there because he knows where he's going. He actually wants to go there. As funny as that sounds, he doesn't want to go there, but he wants to go there for us. He chose to die. It was his choice to die. And so it must have been perplexing to Pilate that he doesn't answer. And he's, so aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing much to Pilate's surprise. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to see how much God loved us and loves us. And I think it's so... Something I'd really encourage you to do is go through the four Gospels. Read the account of Peter's denial in all four accounts. Read the account of Jesus before trial in all four accounts. Because you've got different perspectives. You know, you've got Matthew's perspective, you've got Mark's perspective, you've got John's perspective, and you've got Luke's retelling. In one of the, one of the recounts, um, as, as Peter denies Jesus, across the room, Jesus locks eyes with him. And we can only speculate about what that, that look was, but I imagine, I imagine the look of, it's okay, Peter, it's okay. Okay. I know you're about to go out and whip, weep bitterly, but don't be too hard on yourself. It's okay. It's okay. I've already forgiven you. I know you're broken over this, but it's okay. So I encourage you a couple of things in our Christian walk. When we fall and when we sin, we need genuine repentance. But God has already forgiven us the minute we are genuine in repentance. We need to make a small change. And instead of getting bogged down in the guilt, we need to get back in line. Back in line. Back where you were. Oh, but, you know, I sinned through the week. How can I possibly stand up at church? You were never worthy anyway. Oh, I'm not, I'm not holy. How can I possibly... Uh, get back into serving God when I'm, when I'm this wretch. You were never holy. And by the way, holy doesn't actually mean perfect. Holy means set apart. It changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. We tend to think, I don't know if I can meet those standards. Holy means set apart. So can you be holy this week? Can you be set apart for God? It's much more achievable, isn't it? The way we, we perceive something can change a lot. So we need to get back in line. God just wants us to get back in line, get back up, keep trying. Same way if we have a child and they fall over. Up you get, brush it off, keep going. You might feel like there's a big stumble in the road, but I'm still taking you there. We're, we're still going over there. You just need to get back up because the goal is still ahead of you. Falls over again, get back up. Brush it off. Maybe you need a bit of a cuddle. But we're going over there. And the last thing I would say, in the way Jesus was still, we can be still. There are many times in life where you're going to have an angry mob in front of you and people that shouldn't but desert you behind you. 
Can we be still? Can we be assured that God is with us in that moment? Can we be still while there's emotion around us, while there are swords flying either side of us? Can we be still and know that God wants relationship with us and that he is not afraid? He is in control. Every night when you go to sleep, for approximately eight hours, you have to acknowledge the fact that God will handle things for eight hours without your help. And he'll be okay for eight hours without your help. He wants our help, but he doesn't need our help. He wants our help because he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't need our help. You go to sleep, the world spins on, and God is perfectly capable without you. But he wants your help. There is not a heavy burden in following Jesus. There is, come and join me. God's doing the hard work. He's doing the heavy lifting. He just wants you to participate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so concerned with us, so interested in us that you you know what's best for us, you seek what's best for us and right from the beginning you don't want us to be lonely but you want us to be in relationship, in fellowship, having joy, laughter, enjoying each other's company, leaning on each other's shoulders. Lord, I thank you that you don't require us to constantly sacrifice to you but you've already forgiven us and you just want us to repent and turn back to you. I pray that you would help us to know just how much you look at us with love when we realise what we've done wrong. And like Peter, we can see your eyes staring into our eyes saying, it's okay. It's okay. You're already forgiven. And that you would then give us the courage to, like Peter, get back up, lead the church even the way Peter led the church. And we thank you that Peter, even though he would have been absolutely ashamed of himself, embarrassed, angry. He decided to get back up and he did wonderful things for you where the gospel was spread and many people gained their eternal relationship with you because Peter got back in line and returned to you. Pray for each person here, Lord, that we would go out with the knowledge of your love, that we would go out with the peace and stillness of your spirit and that we would understand that your interest in us is for a relationship and a relationship of forgiveness and grace and where you actually take pleasure in us and I thank you we thank you that you actually take pleasure in us that you are not burdened by our existence but you actually want our existence you want us to exist and you want us to please you. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.